You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, and it's um, 24th of June, uh-huh. 2019. <laughs> okay, I just I had to think for a minute, but it is, it is the 24th of June. And it's uh, cold out there. Four degrees. Mm. It was this morning. Uh, and talking about the weather, it's going to be a top of 15 today, um, early frost. So, yeah, there's a, a, wa- a weather warning um, for people in the outer western, southeastern suburbs. Make sure that you drive well. Uh, and tomorrow is going to be partly cloudy with a chance of fog early in the morning, just like today, with a top of 15 and a low of 3. Some areas of Melbourne, sorry, Victoria, had minus 4 degrees last night. Oh, wow. Exciting. Yeah. Oh, Which wow, is, dear. Yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah I don't, I don't, have we introduced ourselves? No. Dean, <laughs> Dean, Alice, <laughs> and Judith, <laughs> and great to have your company this morning here on Wednesday breakfast. Monday, Monday, <laughs> I like it. We're moving. You, you, you're just you're, you're just trying to get to tax time. Most people are just <laughs> no. like get to the, no, get to I'm June thirty, go and see the accountant. <laughs> I am amazed. I mean, I, over a year on Wednesday breakfast, it kind of gets written into your brain, you know. Yeah. Anyway, shout out to Wednesday breakfast, great people. I will. <laughs> great Good morning. And we're going to refer to them later. So here you go. <laughs> yeah, and it's still Radiothon, folks. I That's mean, right. you, you yeah. can still donate. Yeah, it's Monday not breakfast. too late. To yeah. donate. Yeah, no, we've had some more pledges not. just in the last couple of days. So oh. that's yeah, that's ten dollars from Chloe Baines Yay, and another ten dollars from Amy Smith. Well done, Chloe. Yes. So thank you. Yes, and we've still got you know we can still shake the can and as you just heard. So uh, please, if if you feel moved, we we our target is one thousand, and I think we're just over the five hundred mark yeah. now mm-hmm. with those donations. So mm-hmm. fantastic. The so Monday us. breakfast team will have a surprise. That's on, true. On how we will get our target, but we'll yeah, keep our listeners. Later. Yeah, coming <laughs> that's later. coming later. So um, yeah. But do call 94198377. During working hours. During yeah. working hours. Yeah. Or you can uh, text your pledge on 0488 Yes, and we also need to thank Beyond Zero Emissions because that was a show on just before us and it's always stimulating and um, exciting and, yeah, just a great show. Yeah, fantastic show. Yeah. So I'm just thinking something happened overnight that was um, quite interesting. I don't know if you noticed. There's been an announcement that uh, Australia, and it's all secret, or not so much now, if you've been on the news, but anyway, <laughs> not there's not much detail about it, but uh, Australia is going to open a new port in the Darwin area. 
Mm. Does that come mm. as a bit of a surprise? No. No, yes. no, no yeah. yes. Yeah. yeah, I think I think it does after what mm. we've sort of been, you know, discussing in yeah. regards to what was the so, uh, so Adam Giles's NT territory, obviously, um, yeah, yeah, leasing the port of Darwin uh, uh, a few years ago. Now? Yeah. yeah, to a, a Chinese company, Lambridge. We talked about that last mm-hmm. week on the show. But, you know, how? so how did it all come about that that lease happened? So I think we'll just go back and do just uh, hear a bit from um, John Garrick about how it came about that the Darwin port was leased to a Chinese company, Lambridge, for 99 years. The port was owned by the Northern Territory government and there was a local operator that was known as the Port of Darwin, which, you know, uh, was the the operator of the site on behalf of the government, they were aware that the future needs of the port would require substantial funds to upgrade it to meet the future demand and the growing expectation that this port was going to have a more vital role to play uh, as a gateway to to Asia uh, at the northern part of Australia. And Requests were made, repeated requests to various Commonwealth governments over the years for funding to upgrade the infrastructure of the port to meet the growing demand. The requests for funding were rejected and uh, at the time the Commonwealth Government Agency, which was uh, providing the feedback to the Northern Territory Government, was Infrastructure Australia and they recommended privatisation, that is, go down the route of looking for uh, private equity partners and see what you can get. And uh, what happened then was that uh, it went to the strongest bid, and uh, that was from the Chinese-owned company Landbridge. Landbridge bought the lease for 99 years. And uh, and how much, curiously, how much did they pay? uh, $506 million dollars. With, with an understanding that the new operator would upgrade the facility. Now, it seems to me that uh, if you know, 500, $506 million is really petty change almost. It's not a lot of money to yeah, buy a lease. It's not a lot of money to buy a 99-year lease uh, over a strategic asset. So that was John Garrick. That was in December last year, actually, we did that interview with John Garrick. And uh, what's interesting now is suddenly the Commonwealth government has the money to build a mm. new port mm. in Darwin, you know, mm. if the, uh, the reports coming through last night are accurate. So the question is, where's the money come from? Mm. And why has the Commonwealth government suddenly been able to find it? And I think some of the information that's coming through is in, is that this is a response to the 99-year lease by a Chinese company, this new port, and that it also will be able to accommodate um, U.S. troops if necessary. Mm. So mm. I guess I'm wondering is whether the U.S. is um, putting in funds uh, to bring this mm. together or not. Mm. But, yeah, which uh, could be, which could be highly probable, I would say probably 90% probable, because we do know that um, the US Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral John Greenett, visited Darwin in 2015 to inspect facilities and infrastructure and to see what might be feasible for naval cooperation in and around Australia, hmm. including yes. basing ships. So 
well, yeah, with like what's happening at the moment. It well, seems it's a like story. It'll be a story mm. to follow. Mm. Uh, yeah, and actually later in the show, so we probably should be <laughs> also talking about what's on the show this morning. We will be speaking to Vince Scapatura, who's actually written a book that's just come out this month on the Australian-US alliance and US lobbying in Australia. Mm. So we'll hear from him around mm. eight o'clock. And it's no secret, though, that Darwin sits as a strategic vantage point to it's, oversee it's, the growing tensions. It's so you know. short-sighted mm. that the, the government didn't invest in that port mm. back then when, as Darwin repeatedly um, you know, requested it, as John Carrick pointed out. I should have said John is a senior lecturer in, the business, in business law at Charles Darwin University, lives in Darwin, so you know, has a kind of good sense of, of what's been going on there. And I wonder how uh, the chief minister... For NT Adam Giles is feeling at the moment, seeing as though he made little secret of his intention to lease the Port of Darwin a while back, you know, even though I think there were 14 um, denied requests for federal funding to upgrade the facility within Australia. Yeah. I was just reading, uh, um, there was an article on the ABC website from two hours ago by Matt Garrick, so yeah. that would be an interesting read. It gives you a little bit of an insight as to yeah. what was happening. So, yeah, if you're wanting to follow up more on, on that board, and yeah, and, and stay tuned um, for 8 o'clock to hear what Vince Scapatura has to mm. say. And also after 8, we'll be speaking to Rebecca Williamson, and uh, she'll be looking at um, the use of um, public spaces and particularly libraries, pools um, for surveillance of people in the Parents Next program, parents. So, but first of all, she she looks at, we talk about the role of public spaces generally, which mm. I think is, is just a fascinating topic. But then how, how you know, they're being used in ways that don't fit with the ethos yeah. at all. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking at your face, I'm Alice. Sho- you I'm look like, shocked. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. what? Surveillance <laughs> in the pools? I mean, uh, the, the, the football issue and the, the awareness officers issue that's happening in the AFL at the moment is highlighting that people feeling quite, um, you know, threatened and, and I guess um, disempowered because they're being told how to behave at the football and they're also being watched through surveillance cameras mm. at the football. So that's yeah. a public space, essentially. Yes, it is, a, it is another mm. public space. Mm. I suppose that's a response to the racist taunts, though, against Adam Goods. Mm. Mm. Or yeah, even so just... Uh, Calling umpires' names gets oh, you in I see, trouble. I see. So it's broader. <laughs> yeah. It's broader. It's broader than that. Yeah. And, uh, and at 7:45, I think we should have um, uh, Fran Baum from um, the Flinders University. They're having a public translation forum, and this is really talking about um, you know cohesive public policy. So public yes. spaces and public policy mm. will probably go hand in hand as mm. well. Yeah. And Fran's been talking about public policy, but also inequalities in health. Mm for a long, long time. So, yeah, yeah good person to be mm. speaking to there. And at 7.30, we've got playwright Rory Godbold, um, and he's going to be talking about his experience with voluntary assisted dying and dying in dignity and the campaigning that he's been doing. So he's got a personal story about that, but he's also written a play about it, which um, which was on at the La Mama's Theatre from oh, Wednesday to wonderful. Sunday. Yeah, Aww. and this is just talking in the response mm. of the change in legislation in Victoria, which came about on Wednesday the 19th. Yeah, well, that'll be great and yeah. also be interesting to hear the response. Mm. Yeah. And um, right after the next song, we'll be speaking to Associate Professor Ewan Ritchie and he's going to be talking to us about a very special Red River gum tree. So um, he wants to preserve it and uh, we'll hear more about that. Yeah. And now we've got Run Revolution A Come by Hugh Mundell, a Jamaican reggae singer. 
And that was Hugh Mundell, a Jamaican reggae singer who's got a bit of a tragic story, actually. But you should, yeah, find out more about that. And that was Run Revolution A Come. Attention book lovers. The new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday, the 29th of June from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662 3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. Did you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesea? Whittlesea Community Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittlesecc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate. It's not too late to donate to 3CR Radiothon 94198377 or check our website 3cr.org.au. Celebrate the end of Radiothon with the friendliest punks around. Greek Resistance Bulletin is throwing a party featuring Pest, Somatized, Parlor, Punter and Gun Laws on Saturday the 6th of July at Bar 303. That's 303 High Street in Northcote. Listen on Tuesdays at 10pm for news from the social movements of Greece in English and Greek. And join us to celebrate the diversity of punk and support Community Radio 3CR. Check out Greek Resistance Bulletin on Facebook for more details. Ah, we are having a few, you know, uh, technical issues here getting our interview, but we'll get there. Um, I just thought before we move quickly, Ngarigo, Ngarigo, Indigenous Australian, yesterday achieved a phenomenal event as party the tennis player became world number one i know we don't talk sport at 3cr yeah. but oh, well we got she it sometimes she is a great australian and a yeah. very very proud indigenous australian yeah and she's the world number one tennis player oh. which is great has yeah. she been um she been sort of rising in the ranks for a while or is she, this she sort has. of yeah. come quite quickly yeah no she's um it's just a phenomenal story she gave up playing tennis 
to play women's cricket, played in the Australian League. You know, she started playing tennis when she was quite young. And, yeah, as of last night, she's our first world. Well, awesome. She's a women's world number one in 42 years. So it's a great wow. Indigenous story, but a great Australian sporting story as well. Fantastic. That's so, uh, that's really exciting to mm. see. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so well, I think we, we're having a bit of trouble uh, uh, getting in touch with you. And so we're going to go to our interview with Rebecca Williamson. And Rebecca was a, is a research officer with the Australian National University. And she does research on the role of public spaces, as I said earlier, and particularly like libraries, parks, playgroups. And, um, you know, it looks at how these spaces build community and promote social cohesion. And she's also concerned about how those spaces can be misused as well as sites of surveillance. But first of all, we're just we're going to talk about her interest in social spaces generally and her PhD research, which was conducted in Kempsey, New South Wales. I was interested in the role that public spaces play in helping new migrants settle into the suburb and create a sense of home or a sense of belonging for themselves. I ended up doing some participant observation work in three public spaces there. So one was the public library, one was a local sort of pedestrian mall, outside pedestrian mall, kind of like a little plaza, and then the third space was a local public park. So some of the time I spent observing the way that people were using the spaces, the kind of demographics that were using the spaces, were they old, were they sort of mainly female, male, and I just looked at all of those factors, as well as speaking more directly to local residents and and asking them, well, how do you use those spaces and, and what do they mean to you? I did a bit of background research with the local council to see how those spaces were actually managed for urban planning and and social planning initiatives. The key finding was that these kind of public spaces are often undervalued, not so much by the local council. They're undervalued in society more generally. When we think about multiculturalism and the way it works, we often talk about multicultural policy at a more macro level and forget to look at how multiculturalism actually operates at the ground level, at an everyday level. I find that really interesting and also really important. What did you see? Some of the public spaces are geared explicitly towards fostering these kind of interactions. Hampsey Public Library fostered these kind of engagements, so local knitting groups, that invited people from a whole range of ethnocultural backgrounds to participate. Story time and a whole lot of other activities focused on getting people to interact with each other. Then you also had these other spaces where a lot of this was just happening really informally. The local park, for example, you could see parents from a range of different ethnocultural backgrounds or class backgrounds interacting just as they were on the periphery of the playground watching their kids play. Or... There was a local Tai Chi group that would practice in the park. This was a core of elderly people from Chinese background who lived in the suburb, but a whole lot of other people actually ended up getting involved on and off. It sounds like what you saw was positive, like how these spaces do encourage interaction. I get a really good feeling from what you're yeah. saying. Was there, yeah. Were there any negatives or any dark signs? Sure. Yeah, I, I think there, there always is. So... They can just as easily foster 
conflict and instances where people encounter other people and it just kind of reinforces the prejudices they already have. You witness that as well? Yeah, to a certain extent, definitely. But but um, not as much, it sounds like, not as much. Definitely not as much, but it is also quite a difficult thing to study and to actually have the evidence to say, well, that particular interaction led to this person shifting their prejudice towards this particular social group. A lot of it was trying to combine a whole lot of types of research, so that kind of observation of interaction as well as talking to people about those experiences. I think a key point about these kind of public spaces, these kind of community commons, is that they don't necessarily have to get people talking to each other or engaging in these kind of intercultural, cross-cultural interactions to be successful. I found that part of the reason they were so valued in that particular part of Sydney was they were always welcoming spaces that people could engage in on their own terms, just that they had the right to be in that space, a shared space. In using the space, they were actually recognising their own rights as a citizen, but they were also recognising other people's right to use that space. And that didn't necessarily have to be one-on-one interaction. It could just be the fact that you were sort of rubbing shoulders with lots of people and there was this ethos of tolerance. And uh, great hearing this Rebecca Williamson talking about the positive role of public spaces. I'm wondering, do you use public spaces? Do you go to libraries ever? Do you go to, to get out and do those things? I um, I think when I first came to uh, Australia, I was definitely in the library a lot. So I would use the <laughs> library um, for lots of things because it ends up being just a social hub of information. Rather, mm. you, you don't have to just go and get your books out. So I would sit there and ask questions. I almost used it as an information centre. Yeah, I mean, I, I find too also there's people making, you know, writing the CVs. They're, yeah. you know, doing research, doing all kinds of things. And mm. I've also no, observed when I've been there, and I don't go as often as I'd like, but when I have how patient in general and helpful the librarians are and and really the mix of people that are there. So, yeah, so those are the kinds of things also that Rebecca Williamson found, and particularly she was looking at multicultural aspects Mm. of Mm. things. And and I guess, you know, they're a critical part of social infrastructure. Um, They enhance community solidarity and, I guess, protect uh, social isolation for some people. You know, you find that you might be there and... All of a sudden, you're talking to somebody who you might never have spoken to walking down the street, which, yeah. which is great. Mm. Yeah, and then as, as she talked about, you know, the role in, in also multiculturalism and encouraging dialogue. So what happens to those spaces when they become used as sites of surveillance? And, and that was uh, the question uh, we, we started with. So uh, an opinion piece in the Sydney Morning Herald by Jacqueline Marley which argued that the federal government's Parents Next program mm. was turning <laughs> was turning <laughs> librarians into snitches, yeah. sparked Rebecca to look into it more. And so she's written an article for The Conversation uh, entitled Turning Local Libraries, Pools and Playgrooms, Playgroups into Sites of Surveillance. Parents Next Goes Too Far. So I asked her how that surveillance happens. The program itself requires parents to attend regular meetings with the service providers, and these are private service providers, which the department has has sort of outsourced this compliance aspect to these private providers. 
And parents are also required to undertake a range of approved activities with their children. So some of these are what came up in my article, so library story time, for example, or attending swimming lessons at a local pool or attending playgroups. So it seems that what's happened is that the private providers have started going directly to the community groups, like the playgroups, or to directly to librarians and are asking them to report back on particular parents' attendance at these programs. They're checking up if a parent has reported that, yes, I've been to playgroup this day, then they're actually ringing the library staff and saying, did you see this parent? Could you please confirm this? So they're sort of starting to involve them in this kind of surveillance framework. And what are what are the implications if the parent hasn't turned up at the playgroup, for example? What yeah. then does the librarian or the playgroup leader, what situation are they placed in? What happens when a parent is unable to meet some of these requirements is that they start to accrue what they term demerit points. So you accrue a certain number of demerit points and it can lead to your payments being suspended. So it's putting community workers and librarians into a really difficult position. Often with these types of institutions and these people who are constantly every day engaging with their clients and really getting to know the people that they're they're working with, they're really aware of a lot of the pressures that parents are under because often the people using these spaces can be people who are quite under-resourced, who are quite vulnerable. And they build up a sense of trust, I imagine, with the librarians Definitely. as well. So, so for a lot of the, the regular visitors to the library that I spoke to, they had really close friendships with library staff libraries often actively recruit some of these more regular users to get involved in some of the programs that they're running as actual volunteers. So it was a really great way to foster this active citizenship. How does this requirement to report to the government extending this surveillance role to libraries, how does that affect those trust relationships? You could only imagine that it would affect it really adversely. So the fact that the librarians then have to monitor people that they've formed relationships with would clearly really undermine the whole ethos of those kind of community spaces. So how have then the people in the organisations and the organisations themselves, like libraries, pools, playgroups, how have they responded to these requests? With great concern, really. A lot of them appreciate the fact that the providers are trying to facilitate people to engage in these spaces because they are such great spaces for you know social networking, for feeling a sense of belonging, but they've actually been really concerned primarily with the lack of consultation. So private providers have been using these spaces without actually speaking to, for example, playgroup leaders or, or just playgroup Australia generally, and they have also been using libraries sometimes to meet clients, which is actually in breach of state legislation around the proper use of a library. The second issue the libraries had was that their staff were being directly contacted to report on on parents' attendance and, again, without sort of consultation with library managers. For the parents who are forced to go, it's almost a punishment to go. Exactly, and that's really harmful. So the whole idea of the spaces is kind of welcoming as places that don't discriminate against particular social groups, that don't stigmatise particular social groups. That whole ethos gets undermined by these kind of monitoring practices. These are essentially egalitarian spaces where everyone enters 
as an equal. So when you start to target particular users and potentially stigmatise them further, it definitely undermines that whole idea of social trust. So I think that's really significant in terms of the wider impacts on, on society and social cohesion. And that was Rebecca Williamson, a research officer with the Australian National University. And the Parents' Next program has been subjected to a Senate inquiry, which Mm. produced a a damning report. Uh, That report came out in March this year. And uh, I understand the report's resulted in a few changes, but not nearly enough. And... um, and, and also, you know, there's been a problem with the providers actually not even following the regulations that are there mm. or, and nor, nor the advice. So it, I just found it terrifying that, you know, it, it really it recommended that the, the review rec- inquiry recommended it shouldn't continue in its present form. Um, and today we, we've particularly looked at undermining the role of social institutions when they're co-opted into state surveillance. But some of the reports or submissions to that inquiry talked about human rights abuses. Yeah. And there have been interviews also on other breakfast shows. So I, I just want to put a shout out to both Tuesday Breakfast, who had Julie Kuhn, the CEO of The Wire. And she discussed the racist and sexist nature of the program because it's a, a lot of Aboriginal women. Are, are, mm. are targeted single parents single parents yeah, and and also totally denies the fact that parenting itself is worthwhile work yeah, yeah. you know yeah, yeah. so and, and, and it seems like a system that's um penalizing families already on the po- poverty exactly. line essentially yeah. yeah and i think you know the way the government deals with um with refugees with vulnerable people like it seems that it'll get away with what it can do its worst so yeah it was quite distressing wednesday breakfast also did um an interview around it when when the submission inquiries were going in. So you could listen back to either of those shows. Tuesday was April 16th, if you wanted to hear it, and on Wednesday it was February 27th, so those podcasts are available. Mm. Yeah, and now we're actually going to speak to Rory Godbold. So this is um, it's quite a personal story about the legislation that's changed in Victoria recently um, for voluntary assisted dying. So if you if you are affected by this or if you need to speak to somebody about this, please do call um, the Lifeline 13 11 14. And I'll um, repeat that number again after the interview as well. So. On Wednesday the 19th of June, Victoria changed its legislation on voluntary assisted dying. So it gives control to people who are dying and means that they can actually die with dignity and choose when and where they die. Um, The legislation has been criticised already for being a bit too conservative because it isn't accessible for everybody. But ultimately, it's a great step in the right direction. And Rory has written a play on his experience um, and it's a very personal story, and it was it was on at the La Mama's Theatre from Wednesday to Sunday, and I think it was pretty much sold out because I tried to get a ticket oh. and I couldn't. But um, like well, I guess that's an indication of the interest in the exactly, issue. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, hello, Rory. Hi, I'm good. How are you? Good, thank you. Good. Thank you so much for joining us today, and congratulations on the success. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it went really well. It was a very um, timely uh, occasion to have this show programmed at La Mama, and we thank La Mama for putting it on, and it was a, a great conversation start-up. Absolutely. And, and La Mama's Theatre, it's such, it's such a great theatre for productions like this with social issues and yeah. conversations that need to be had. 
Yeah, we had a forum last week um, after the show on the Wednesday night, which was the day the legislation came into effect. And it was really fascinating the way the audience engaged with it and kind of, you know, they they brought forth the new kind of conversation about these laws. Yeah. Yeah, it's moved on and now we're talking about new things, which is really fascinating. That's great. And... I mean, the subject of voluntary assisted dying has a has a personal importance to you and your family. Um, yeah. And so um, I was hoping you could share with us a little bit more about your involvement or your experience with this. Sure. Yeah, so it came um, into my life pretty unexpected. Um, my parents are both nurses and my dad um, in 2015 was diagnosed with terminal stage four esophageal cancer. Um and Dad was a palliative care nurse working in cancer care at the time. So when he was faced with his own death, he knew quite intimately uh, what that death might look like. And having that knowledge, he decided that he wanted to take control over his own death. Um, so that led him to acquire Nembutal, which is a life-ending drug. Um, so that was a really, a really fascinating process for all of us, um, him acquiring it and kind of, you know, the, all these new questions came into it. When's the right time? What mm. if he takes it too early? You know, so all these complexities came in, which the play kind of looks at, that idea of communication and, and that stuff. But that situation was uh, an interesting one because, you know, that, that question of time and when would he know when the right time was, well, he knew exactly when the right time was, mm -hmm. and and we saw when the right time was too. But um, due to his physical condition, because of the cancer he had, the day that he wanted to drink the Nembutal to give him that peace and control, uh, he was physically unable to take it. Yeah. So then, what had happened after that was the wild death that he was desperately trying to avoid. Mm. And I believe that with the legislation coming in, that will actually um, somebody will be able to assist that person if they are unable to swallow, yeah. for example. Yeah. Um, so that that sort of change now, which would have been amazing, like it would have been perfect if that was in the case for your father, um, Ray. Yeah, it was um, one of my real big concerns. <laughs> that I was like, yes, all right. So what if the person can't physically take it? What if mm. they can't ingest at that stage? Which could happen in a variety of different uh, terminal conditions. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's great to see that clause in there, not to preclude anyone who does go through the steps to, you know, uh, to take control at the end of their life. Yeah. And do you think um, your dad being a nurse, did it perhaps make him more um, vocal, more passionate, just because he did know, he knew what that would look like for him in the next sort of coming months? Yeah, it's interesting that people say that, you know, nurses are the ones that are at the bedside when people die, and I think that's really true. I think they really get that that kind of whole holistic view on um, life and death and dying. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the, if you speak to any nurse, they say, I carry around the death um, with me mm -hmm. that I've experienced, whether they're good or bad. So I definitely think, you know, there's, in speaking to my dad, he never really spoke about uh, his patients at all when we were growing up. But when he started to communicate to us about, you know, wanting to access control and started telling us some of these stories about people that 
had died in a way that, you know, wasn't the way they wanted, he would get quite emotional. Yeah. Um, and it's that, that idea of, uh, and the nurse character in the play looked at this as well. At the very end of the play, she says, I didn't let myself cry because if she starts to cry for one patient, then you've got to cry for all of them and it's too much. Mm. And sorry, go on. No, so I think he, you know, saw the opportunity to educate people as well about that um, and to give a bit of reality because I think, you know, sometimes we sanitise death a little bit. Yeah, yeah. And so he he took that chance to educate people about that and now in your your play that you, you've written, it's yeah. almost like you're taking that chance to educate people as well. Um, yeah. So were there any specific plays or, th- uh, sorry, themes within the play that you wanted to explore? Yeah, well, there was lots. So the play took on a really, it was kind of, I started writing it when I was um, grieving and it became a bit of a chance for me to get over my trauma. It ended up becoming a fictional play and not about that at all. But it it was, the way I like to think of the play is it was memory sliding in and out. So the time was fragmented um, and there was probably like 30 different things over the space of 75 minutes. So it moved quite um, fast and rapidly. But there's mainly the the main kind of idea for all the scenes was um, control and surrender. So it was there was four characters. There was Dan, the dying person. There was the palliative care nurse. There was Dan's partner, Liam, and Dan's sister, Kate. So, and they all had these kind of scenes where they were all battling for control and sometimes that meant that they were battling each other. Mm. Yeah, so that's just those relationship dynamics was something that I was really interested in because I think death is so personal to the dying person but also the people that are left behind. Um, so I wanted to try and give a realistic indication of what those conversations are. It, um, it sounds absolutely amazing. Uh, that's Judith here. It, right. it just sounds incredible. Will there be? Will it be shown again? I, since it was sold out, is there going to be some move to uh, have the play performed again? Um, well, there's always hope. Nothing has been confirmed yet, but there's always hope that it will. Um, and yeah, we'll definitely hope to put it on again. It's definitely not the end for us. To keep working on it, so yeah. hopefully you'll see it out and down. I love the sound of the themes that you've used, and you know the idea of yeah. the fragments, and, and and I mean, and what life is, you know, this this yeah. kind of series, and then how everyone, in a way, has um, a connection with the person who's dying, and uh, those are different, and with each other. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm. and that was, you know, the audience are connecting to it. With their own stories as well, which was nice. You know, people on the shows that I was there, people wanted to have a conversation about, you know, someone that they'd lost or the person that they lost that had the loveliest death in the world. And, you know, it's great. I think we all need to talk about death and dying Mm. more. Um, Because it's those lasting memories of you have of somebody, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And the way I think about it is, I mean, death... Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes brings with it trauma. And that's trauma for the people that are left behind. But it's also trauma for the dying person. Just because they have a, you know, an end to their existence doesn't mean that they don't carry those tra- that trauma. So, mm. 
I think it's really important. Yeah. And your father was published, so Ray was published in The Age many times. Yeah. Um, he was a real prominent activist for Dying yeah. with Dignity. So do you see yourself carrying on that legacy? Yeah, it's something that I have a huge passion for. Um, it's going to be interesting to, because the play is set in a, where having it is illegal. Um, so as I said, it was interesting to have that conversation after the show because it brought forth a whole new mm. wave of issues, conscientious objection. Um, that was one of them. People still think the law is quite conservative. So uh, I'd love to be involved more, mm-hmm. um, but I guess I've just got to you know, work out what the, the new kind of ideas are and then work with those mm. and um am i right to say that your your play the actual the characters they were in their 30s so they were relatively it was a young it was sort of not aimed maybe at a younger audience but it was bringing young people into that conversation that actually they might not have ever experienced before yeah and i thought that was really important i did start to when i started it i started to write about um people in their 50s, mm. you know, their typical story. And then I thought, oh, well, why why that? Why not make it something that's more relatable to me? Because I think <laughs> I was confronted with death quite a lot in a short period of time in my life, just through my family. Um, but lots of younger people ha- don't really have an experience with death. So I think it's important to kind of start to have the conversations early, particularly around choice and control. Um, and it's in the char- in the play, the main character's mother has dementia and is quite frail and is going through the process of dying and he's avoiding that. And then he gets his terminal brain cancer diagnosis and then can't avoid death anymore. So I think, you know, that's that idea of control and surrender. We put up these walls to protect ourselves from death. And I guess by bringing the characters down a bit, yeah. um, I wanted to open up that conversation with a younger audience. Mm, mm. I mean, I wish I could just talk about this for the whole show, but um, (laughs) we're running out of time, unfortunately, for this one. But if people who are listening wanted to get involved in um, Dignity with Dying and and some of the work that you're doing, how how best can they support what you're doing? There's a couple of great organisations out there. So Dying with Dignity Victoria... Um, has done some really excellent work. Um, so look them up. There's also a, a national organisation set up by Andrew Denton called Go Gentle, um, and they're going to do some really fascinating work. But I think in Victoria, um, we should be grateful that it exists, but there's a big fight that's going to happen around the rest of the country now. Mm-hmm. Um, Australia, Victoria has the most progressive kind of uh, state government, which is how we managed to get it through. The other governments aren't quite as progressive. So it's on the agenda pretty much in every state and territory. Um, so if you get involved with those organisations, um, they'll, they'll keep you updated and let you know how you can help to kind of help the other states as well. And we also should be grateful to Fiona Patton, I think, she for her leadership yeah. on this issue. Fiona came to the show yesterday, which was Amazing. Excellent. Yeah, and she she really enjoyed it. And Fiona is uh, such an important person. Um, so yeah, 
Yeah. It was great. And I was like, all right, what's next? And she gave me the rundown. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. I was like, yes, we need that. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Thank you so much, Rory, for joining us. No and worries. hopefully you'll be able to tell us all about the next time it's on, which yeah, will come yeah. about soon Please enough, I hope. Check out for the name when the light leaves. Yes. See it around. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you. No worries. And that was playwright Rory Godbold on Voluntary Assisted Dying and his play that's just finished with the La Mama Theatre, When the Light Leaves. And that line again, um, if you want somebody to talk to about this and you feel like you've been affected um, by this issue, is 13 11 14. Outer Urban Projects and Hume City Council present Hume Studios, a unique performance event taking place in Melbourne's Broadmeadows. Dancers, musicians and vocalists from Islander, hip-hop and classical genres alongside Middle Eastern drummers combine to give you the best of Hume's mighty arsenal of emerging talent. Featuring Milad Noruzi, Ruthie Kaisila, Natasha Hanna, Joseph Samarani, poetry by Didam Kaya, choreography by Dion Nuku and Nicola McCarthy, directed by Irini Vella. Hume Studios, three shows only, Saturday the 29th of June at 4pm and 6.30pm and Sunday the 30th of June at 3pm. Free entry, but bookings are essential. For more information and tickets, head to outerurbanprojects.org. Outer Urban Projects, a 3CR supporter. You're on 855am3cr.org today. You, it's not too late to donate. 94198377 during business hours or you can SMS your pledge on 04888098558. There's a public uh, translation forum which is going to be happening next Wednesday at Flinders uh, Victoria Square. And I guess it, it's all about um, community well-being demanding cohesive public policy on areas such as health uh, and also um, the, the agendas on, on justice. So we were going to try and get um, Professor Dennis McDermott from La Trobe to talk about his presentation, which is going to be focusing on the justice sector policies and population well-being. However, we have the pleasure of being joined by uh, the director of the Southgate Institute and Matthew Flinders um, University, the distinguished professor of public health at Flinders University, Professor Fran Braum, to talk to us a little bit more about the forum and some of the, I guess, um, the work that the Institute does. Good morning, Fran. Good morning, Dean. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. I um I had all this this uh, uh, crime and, and justice stuff prepared uh, because you know there's been this whole talk about African gangs in Victoria, which is obviously yeah quite um, uh, 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 topical. But what I thought we could talk about was really what the um, idea behind this uh, policy translation forum, um, how it came about. How it is? Well, yeah. Well. We at the institute that I'm director of, the Southgate Institute, it's called Health, Society and Equity. Mm. And what we recognise there is that whether or not most of us are healthy isn't actually to do with hospitals and GPs. There's a little bit, but it's overwhelmingly to do with the things that happen in the rest of our lives, like our housing, our jobs, 
um, our employment, urban planning, uh, you know, what, kind of, what kind of environment we're living in. So we applied for a grant to the Australian Research Council and we got the funding to look at um, four sectors. So we've looked at the justice sector, uh, everything that happens in policy, legislation, uh, court, police, corrections. The energy sector, about energy, how it's generated, how it's distributed, how much we pay for it, of course. The environment, so what's the policy and legislation on environment, protection, natural resources, land management. And finally, urban planning. Because we look there at how do we do urban planning, you know, what's our transport like, what's the infrastructure in our cities like. So we took each of those areas and then we looked at every policy in that area. So we've looked at hundreds of policies and we've asked the question, how healthy are they? Are they likely to support our health or undermine our health? Mm. So it's been a massive exercise. We've had a team of researchers working on that and, um, and we're getting close to the end of the project. And what we like to do is test our ideas and say, this is what we've made of it as a research team, and we'll have about um, 80 policymakers and others at the forum, and they we will discuss and, and look at the interpretation of our findings, and that helps us develop, you know, recommendations that are very relevant to policymakers. And Fran, I guess the the basic idea here is to to make sure that you draw a focus on difficult areas of public policy, but to also answer some of those nag- nagging questions about social well-being in general? Yeah. And, and well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think for us, the big headline thing we found um, across all the sectors is that in, I think, and I think in Australia, we can only talk about Australia, but mm. I don't think it's common in other kind of advanced democracies. We put very little emphasis on preventing problems or, you know, or, or trying to, um, anticipate what's going to make a, a population have a lot of health and, and well-being. Now, so in the justice sector, for instance, we put a lot of emphasis on um, protecting the population from crime, and yes, that's right. Um, we put emphasis on the staff in the correction service, and that's obviously right, but we put very little emphasis on stopping people uh, committing crimes or, or, more importantly, going to um, prison in the first place. Mm. And, 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 you know, if we, um, Dennis McDermott on Wednesday will be talking particularly with an Aboriginal perspective. Um, and, of course, what, what we find there is that Aboriginal people are hugely overrepresented in the criminal justice sector, something like 13 more times likely to be imprisoned. And yet when you look below that, very often that's a very minor offences such as, um, you know, not having paid a parking fine or not having paid a speeding fine or something like that. And that, that many of those people who are going into prison in the sort of months before they entered prison, for instance, were often in insecure um, in housing, uh, half of them were unemployed and two in three haven't finished secondary school. So that's what we, we call the sort of social factors underlying um, health and also your, your chances of being imprisoned, actually. So our, I guess what we're saying in our institute, why don't we invest more money in, in those things that would stop people um, going into prison in the first place? Instead of building more prisons. And, and I yeah. think the other... Um 
thing that the forum's going to promote, which I, 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 I hear has been working in South Australia over the past decade, is the health in all policies approach. Um, yeah. And that's all about essentially having scrutiny over current public policy, isn't it, and making sure that moving forward over the next decade that we are having those policies that work together in, in, in relation to making sure that the health outcomes are good as well. Yeah, you've got that exactly, exactly, very well. Well, yes, so Carmel Williams, who works in SA Health, our, our health department, um, she has kind of been the public servant who's been running the health in all policies for the, for the last 10 or so years. So she will be presenting. And what she always stresses is that um, health in all policies is about looking for what she calls co-benefits. So it might be a benefit for the urban planning sector, but it also has good health outcomes. So, you know, she, she's keen, you know, she's not coming in and sort of just wagging a, a public health finger at urban planners, but she's saying to them, how can you do your work in mm. such a way that you achieve what you have to achieve, but you also do it in a way that's healthy for people? Yeah, creating so, sustainable cities and I guess even natural environments from that. Yeah, exactly. So, that, so and she, she refers to that as co-benefits, and it really does, you know, make make a lot of sense. Um, I think, and um, and that that part of in South Australia, they have been working with the urban planning department, with the environment department, and and sort of building those co-benefits. I mean, I think you ha- you started a really good example over in Victoria of the Healthy Parts, Healthy People project. Mm. I don't know um, which we've actually copied in South Australia, but I think it, it originated in Victoria, and that's had uh, great success in saying, "Well, let's encourage people to get out and about, use the parks we've got. How can we make that so people are doing more exercise when they visit a park? You know, which is good for our health. How can we make it more accessible to people who don't have much money by making the parks free, for instance?" So it's just those kind of little things that sound very small, but actually can make a big difference to the population's health overall. And, and I guess the, the the idea of this this forum will be to promote pretty much everything. And what I found interesting is that um, you know Adelaide had a 30-year plan, and it leads, uh, I guess, an, as an example of. Um, healthy urban planning. Why do you believe that other states sort of haven't jumped on board? I mean, I know you just mentioned Victoria have a slightly different thing with healthy parks and healthy programs. Adelaide's had this, um, you know, uh, health and all policies working for them. What? Why aren't you know states like New South Wales or Brisbane sort of you know even got on board ten years ago to go, hey, this is working. Why don't we incorporate some of this? Yeah. Well, I mean, I have to say we. Um the 30-year plan and the health and all policies, I think, have happened within an umbrella in South Australia. The, okay. um, the RAN Labor government that came in, I think, in about 2003, established the South Australian Strategic Plan, which established kind of goals right across all the things that governments do. And then under that, we got initiatives such as the 30-year plan and the um, health and all policies initiative, which... which you know, was a way of achieving this um, South Australian strategic plan. And that set a series of goals, you know, perhaps about renewable energy, about the well-being of the population and so on. So I think it's very good when, when a government does have that. I mean, in another project, we're looking at Sydney. And, you know, Sydney, I think, like Melbourne, you've been... I mean, the other thing, in, in of course, in South Australia is we don't have a, a fast-growing population like mm. you do in Melbourne and Sydney. And I think that makes the challenges much harder. 
But I know that in Sydney, one of the initiatives we're looking at in Sydney is there's a Greater Sydney Commission now, which is looking at kind of instead of all the developments in Sydney being based around the harbour, actually developing um, the area around Parramatta and the area around where the new airport would be. And I think there's potential there to make Sydney a much more equitable city so that the people in the West are getting more of the the things that we want in a city, and it's not all just concentrated around around the harbour and the sort of richer suburbs, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think Sydney is doing some of that, and I think there's potential for that Greater Sydney Commission's work to, to end up with a more equitable uh, city in Sydney if, if resources are invested in the West. I'm afraid I, I, I'm, I'm sure things are happening in Melbourne, but yeah. I haven't got an example to give you like that. And um, I, I know we're, we're, we're running short on time, but... Um you earlier in the year you also launched your new book, Governing for Health, Advancing Health and Equity through Policy and Advocacy. Yes. And essentially, the Southgate Institute for Health, Society and Equity, um, they develop a number of free resources for evaluation and research. What can people expect out of this um, forum? Is there anywhere where people can go and and, and read yes. a transcript of it? Um, well, we're doing we're live streaming it. Okay. So you can um, if you, you can log on to a live. And if you if you want to sort of um, register for that, it's 087-221-8410 and just say I want to be part of the live stream and there'll be a recording afterwards. And we also have what we call a health equity uh, hub where we do rapid summaries of our work for um, busy policymakers particularly. And you can read a whole lot of two-page summaries of our research with policy recommendations. And if you go to the Flinders University webpage and uh, Google Health Equity Southgate, you'll find that. And it's oh. called the Health Equity Hub. Fantastic. So what was that number again? 08221? No, sorry, 087-221-8410. Fantastic. Thank you, but Fran. You have, we'll yeah, we'll okay, put that we'll on the um, yeah, breakfast uh, link there. But thank you and uh, enjoy Darwin. Okay, thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Professor Fran Baum, who's a director of the Southgate Institute, and Matthew Flinders, and she is a distinguished professor of public health. And I mentioned that she had her book um, launched in March this year, talking about governing for health, um, uh, advancing health and equity through policy and advocacy. It's always something quite, um, you know, unique when people are challenging some of our policies and making sure that the decision makers are on top of what's happening. Yeah, and Fran's done great work in that area. And I think we've got some music. We do. Yeah. yeah, Forgot about the music. Yeah, don't forget. It's that wonderful Ruby Hunter song, in this case performed by Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. So uh, great song, just beautiful. And it's about our city streets. And uh, that's the kind of thing that Fran Baum thinks about in terms of creating healthy public policy. Yeah, we look after everything. Now, I don't know about you, but last week I was uh, watching with horror. Uh, the end of last week as tensions between the U.S. and Iran escalated. 
And um, I think also in Australia, we w- wonder whether Australia is going to be engaged in another conflict in the Middle East, if, if that was what happened. Fortunately, it did not. So to discuss those events, uh, we're joined by Vince Scapatura. Vince lectures in politics and international relations at Macquarie University. And he also conducts research on Australian and American foreign policies international relations in the Asia-Pacific area, and Middle East politics. So welcome to 3CR, Vince. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's great to have you on the show this morning. And uh, also, I know you have a book that's just come out this month, uh, The U.S. Lobby and Australian Defense Policy. So uh, congratulations on your book. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, and welcome to 3CR. Now, the, the first question I have really is is relating just going back to the events of last week and uh, it not, not just, um, you know, the possible, the potential attacks that didn't happen, but also the attacks on the tankers. And it seems like both uh, President Donald Trump and uh, also the Iranian leadership, they're both saying they don't want a war. But they seem to be being pushed in that direction. So I'm really curious about, you know, who does want a war? Right, yeah. So I think you're right. It's um, it's clear that uh, President Trump is not interested in drawing the United States back into the Middle East after campaigning to withdraw troops from, uh, U.S. troops from the Middle East to focus on America first. In fact, just recently he relaunched his, uh, or launched his election campaign, speaking about pulling troops out from the Middle East and so on. It's not really a good look for him to be entering a brand new war in the Middle East uh, during his uh, the beginning of his election campaign. Uh, but there are certainly forces around him um, who are and have been egging the president on to war. Uh, his national security advisor, John Bolton, in particular, um, has been uh, urging for a confrontation with Iran. Prior to becoming his national security advisor, uh, Bolton was outspoken, writing opinion pieces in the New York Times, speaking to opposition, Iranian opposition groups um, inside the United States. I mean, I understand um, he's been called a hawk's hawk, like he's very extremely yes, pro-war. Yes, and by Trump himself. I mean, Trump himself has admitted that uh, Bolton is a hawk and he's been pushing for, uh, for a confrontational uh, position with respect to Iran. What's um, in it? What's in it for John Bolton? Well, John Bolton has had this position for a number of years. Remember, he was a an architect or one part of a team that um, built the case for a war in Iraq. I uh, see. No, I didn't realize well. that. Yeah. Uh, he has this very you know, Cold War, man, still this old Cold War mentality. Uh, any regime anywhere around the world which uh, doesn't follow orders from the United States is up for regime change, according to John Bolton. And so he's very openly been calling for regime change. Yes. Uh, in, in Iran now, not since he became national security advisor, because he knows that's not official Trump administration policy, but certainly he holds those views personally. Yes. But he's one one actor pushing for war, but uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. I mean, it was revealed recently that this this war that we nearly had um, was um, was being uh, President Trump was being urged by uh, Pompeo, by Gina Haspel, the CIA director, by John Bolton, the national security advisor. And it was, in fact, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who are uh, the Chief of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was uh, persuading uh, Trump not to, in fact. Uh, yes, well, that's interesting. And and I imagine there are also interests in the Middle East that are pro-war. Right. Uh, well, would you speculate, I suppose, on whether some of the countries in the Middle East would be urging this war with Iran? 
Right. Well, I mean, it's not even, it's an open secret that uh, both Saudi Arabia and Israel and to a certain extent the United Arab Emirates uh, have been opposed to the normalization of relations between Iran and the U.S. Uh, they're all very much opposed to the Obama administration's uh, nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which Trump administration subsequently tore up. Uh, and they're concerned about normalization of uh, relations between the U.S. and Iran because they feel that it would undermine their own special relationship with the United States. Well, I mean, I think it's it's interesting because uh, Israel has uh, nuclear weapons. Saudi Arabia is kind of a wannabe. They're moving right. close with the assistance of U.S. technology. They'll they right. potentially can become a nuclear power. Is some of this uh, animosity towards Iran about who's got the biggest guns? Well, yes, uh, both both Israel and Saudi Arabia have um, ambitions for regional hegemony. And Iran is a, a thorn in the side of those ambitions. Um, but it's interesting, the nuclear question, the, the, the hypocrisy um, on the laser-like focus on Iran's alleged pursuit of nuclear weapons, uh, while there are other states in the region, namely Israel, uh, that in fact do have nuclear weapons and are in violation or not a party to the non-proliferation treaty, the major arms treaty on nuclear weapons. But it's interesting, too, that um, even Australia's own intelligence assessments, at least um, several years back when there were a number of WikiLeaks revelations um, that were revealed um, that Australia's own Office of National Assessment, Australia's peak intelligence organisation, um, did not see Iran as a rogue state. Yes. Did not see Iran as uh, having this uh, hostility towards the United States that uh, could not be addressed. In fact, it was referred to as uh, having kind of shallow roots. Well, I mean, that, this is interesting because it suggests that Australia has an independent view from the United States. At well, least, at least back then it did. But, but Vince, one of the things that's concerned me is John Bolton is now in Israel, yeah. and um, you know we don't still don't know who was behind the attacks on the tankers. For example, it's not been definitive, and um, I get I get concerned that. Um, you know, groups like Saudi, countries like Saudi or Israel both have the potential to do something to escalate this conflict uh, yeah. under, you know, I'm sorry, that, um, you know, not necessarily uh, obviously, but right. uh, under the radar. Yes. Well, that, you know, when, um, uh, when uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, delivered his assessment that it was Iran that was responsible for uh, mining those uh, two oil tankers, it's important to remember that that was his opinion. That was a government assessment. It was not an intelligence assessment. Yes. Uh, he said that it was based on intelligence that he'd seen, but that is very different from a definitive, a thorough intelligence assessment. This is essentially Mike Pompeo and the Trump administration's opinion uh, based upon some intelligence that they've seen. And we should be very skeptical about the um, opinions of the U.S. government. Uh, given their track record in, in this area in the past. Yes, uh, indeed, I'm sure that's true. Now, I also know that there is a meeting coming up in Europe on June 28th on the Iran nuclear deal, so it will be interesting to see what comes out of that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important to recognise here that this issue with Iran's uh, pursuit of nuclear weapons was a resolved issue, and the Trump administration unresolved it. Um, there, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which was negotiated between President Rouhani in Iran and President Obama in the United States, it was working. It was a huge Atomic achievement, and Iran has abided by it, I understand. Yes, the IEA, the IAEA have conducted numerous assessments uh, and, and affirmed multiple times that Iran is in compliance with the agreement. Uh, we had 
were, we were, this is not the first time we've been in this situation. Leading up to the adoption of the JCPOA, uh, there was concern that uh, the US and Iran were on the brink of war. And it was only because of this agreement that we, were, we stepped back from that brink. And now uh, this crisis has re-emerged as a result of the Trump administration withdrawing again from that agreement um, and really pushing uh, Iranians into a corner. Their backs are against the wall. Their economy is in a tailspin. Um, and they've been remarkably restrained, uh, restrained in fact. Yes, that, that, that's they've, what I gather from what I'm, I'm reading. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Vince, you know, I really want to go on and speak a little bit about your book because uh, you have made some really important points in that, in um, the U.S. lobby and Australian defense policy. But we are going to run out of time. But um, I'm just thinking with regard to our alliance with the U.S., what do you think needs to happen there? Well, you know, there are a a number of uh, points to make here. Uh, First of all, there is a, uh, what I refer to in my book as an alliance orthodoxy, which exists amongst uh, Australia's national security elite, that you could call them, that sees the US alliance as indispensable to Australian security, that it's rooted in shared values forged over decades of spilling blood on the battlefield together, these kinds of emotional sentiments, and also the idea that Australian security is underpinned by this benign US hegemony, uh, military dominance in, in our region, but also globally, and that that upholds, you know, peace and stability and the rule of law and so on. This is kind of the framework. Now, all of those things are highly contestable, uh, and they always have been. But I think they're even harder to justify now with the Trump administration, which is openly, you know, criticizing America's alliance obligations. It's all about putting America first, flagrantly disregarding international law. And, of course, this example with uh, withdrawing from the JCPOA is one example of that. Um, nevertheless, there are this whole host of elite institutions from media, academia, parts of academia, think tanks, private diplomatic initiatives like the Australian-American Leadership Dialogue, which is one of the central focuses of my book, that kind of promote this alliance orthodoxy and kind of attempt to instill it in the minds of up-and-coming decision-makers and, and then sanction anyone who departs from it. Yes, that I... mentality, that alliance dependency mentality, this alliance orthodoxy, um, it needs to be challenged and it needs to be shifted because it's this kind of mentality that would certainly uh, drive Australia to contributing to, for example, any war with Iran should the U.S. ask and seek Australian support. Yes, and, and Vince, it, I mean, I haven't finished the book itself, but uh, I found it really interesting. And also your point that uh, the U.S. is often seen as the world's great purveyor of liberal values and the rule of law. But for me, when we're talking about Iran, that view totally ignores that the U.S., along with Britain, was involved in overthrowing Iran's democratically elected and popular prime minister, Mohammad Mossadegh, in 1953, and installing the hated regime of the Shah. Yes. Uh, so, you know, uh, the the view that uh, that America is the purveyor of liberal values, I mean, even that has to be examined. And also Australia itself, you know, who are we and where do we want to sit? And I think your uh, book raises those questions really well. And uh, And I'm hoping you'll come on and talk to us again soon. Absolutely. It would be my pleasure. Yeah. Thank you so much, Vince. And thank you great to me. hear from you today. Mon âge encore moins 
Just before that song, we were uh, speaking with Vince Capitura from Macquarie University uh, about the um, Australia-American alliance and events in the Middle East. And the song we've just heard a little bit of, some of you may have recognized, it's Bob Dylan's With God on Our Side, which looks at all the different conflicts America has been involved in over the years, up to Russia (laughs) with uh, the Cold War, because that's when the song was written. And it was performed there by a Canadian group, Heart Rouge. So now we have um, been um, able to contact Ewan Ritchie, which is fantastic, and uh, welcome him to 3CR. Welcome, Ewan. Good morning. Good morning. And um, Ewan, I'm just going to introduce you properly here. You're an associate professor in wildlife ecology and conservation at Deakin University Center for Integrative Ecology. And uh, you also teach courses on global perspectives on biodiversity, wildlife ecology and you do research on on mammals and management of mammals and conservation all those things but today you're coming on the show to talk about a tree (laughs) (laughs) an article that you wrote for the conversation this centuries-old river red gum is a local legend here's why it's worth fighting for so Ewan could you just for people who haven't seen it or have driven by and didn't even notice, could you just describe the Boleyn River red gum? Yeah, so this is a tree that's in the eastern suburbs in Boleyn, as you said, which is, uh, you know, not far from from Melbourne, really, Um, uh, on the corner of Manningham Road and uh, Bridge Street, which is a very busy intersection. And for anyone who's driven that road would know that you can see a Caltech service station with a really large um, gum tree at the front, um, and that's the tree that we're talking about. And it's estimated to be potentially 300 or more years old. Um, it's about 20 metres in height, has a span of about 17 metres, and, and the girth of the trunk at the base is about 2 metres. So it's an absolutely spectacular river red gum, and it's probably the last and the oldest remaining um, individual of what was a, a fairly extensive red gum forest in that area. Yes, so why is it worth fighting for? I mean, that obviously yeah, so it's the last we, we, one, but what, what else? What more? Yeah, there's a whole range of reasons why we really need to conserve trees like these. We know that around the world, actually, that old trees are becoming increasingly rare, and they've obviously been cut down for a whole range of reasons, whether it's just directly for forestry, but also as our cities grow um, and, and agriculture as well, um, unfortunately, trees are often cut down to make way for those things. And so old trees, and I mean sort of, you know, 200 um, years plus, are incredibly um, rare. And they have a whole range of really important things that they do in the environment. So they store lots of carbon, which is really important for a climate change perspective. So when you obviously cut those trees down, you then release that carbon back to the atmosphere, which is obviously not great considering what's happening with climate change. They provide really important habitat uh, for many species, um, invertebrates, you know, under their bark and so forth, but also things like birds and possums that live um, in the canopy and also in the, in the hollows that are in these trees. So it often takes, well, um, a lot more than 100 years uh, for hollows to form in these gum trees. Again, why really old trees are so valuable um, for pro- providing homes for wildlife. We also know that big trees create shade and they make our cities cooler. So in areas with lots of concrete and and bitumen and so forth, those areas are a lot hotter than areas that have really big old established trees. 
Yes. And we also know yeah, and there's more yes. <laughs> they just make us feel happy and there's lots of science yes. that um, you know, suggests that if you spend time in and around um, uh, green spaces, um, particularly with large trees and so forth, that your mental health and your just general wellness is likely to be better. And so this tree has survived against the odds. That's something that you point out. And I, I did drive out yesterday to have a look. And it's amazing to see it, you know, be in front of this yep. Caltech station and surrounded. And I just want to give a sense of what it sounded like when I was there at that corner. Yeah, so we could have made that louder. I actually calmed it down so we wasn't too hard on the it's ears. It's very busy. Mm. <laughs> and that was yeah, look, Sunday. You say, it, it's actually sort of almost um, remarkable, really, that that tree is still alive because, as you would have seen, you know, most of its roots, um, the surface is covered in concrete and bitumen, so very little water, presumably, is making its way down um, to the roots. Um, and, of course, all the pollution that's coming off that major road as well. So... I think, you know, that's another thing that we should really respect this tree in a sense that it's managed to, despite quite large odds, um, survive in that spot for so long. And it's almost a testament, really, um, to a sort of nature battling on it against the odds of the development. And so there really is just so many reasons for saving this tree. Um, and, of course, what that really remains is that the proposed uh, north um, East link, East link that, mm. that is going to cut across where this tree is may have to be redirected or, or think of a different path that um, doesn't require the death of this tree. And, and it says something, Ewan, about public policy then because, I mean, there is a, a plaque there um, which notes its heritage value and then all of a that's sudden right. we've got this North Link project that's coming on and all of a sudden, oh, no, we've just got to remove it because it has to go through there. So why bother even giving it a heritage value if you're not going to respect it, you know, yeah. 10 years down the track? <laughs> well, and, well, not only that, it was actually um, um, bestowed uh, Victoria's Tree of the Year by the National Heritage Trust uh, mm. Victoria uh, this year. So Victorians had the opportunity to vote on a whole range of different trees and they chose Boleyn's tree. So it would also be pretty sad if Victoria's Tree of the Year was cut down to make way um, for another road. Um, and I, really what we need is better public transport. Yes, and I understand it's been fought for before this tree. It has. It's had a number of people defend it. Uh, Mrs Fullerton, I think, probably the most important um, person. Um, so many, many years ago, she was a local resident, and um, when they were clearing that area, um, for development, um, she managed to um, uh, make sure that tree survived. But then uh, a few years after that, there was a um, war veteran who actually <laughs> defended that tree um, against someone who was about to chainsaw it down for firewood. And apparently the uh, story goes that he actually had a, a rifle with him. So he was prepared to, um, um, I guess, you know, put a bit of a fright into that person who was going to cut it down. But look, there's many people um, that do love this tree. Um, I myself grew up just around the corner from it, which is why I was inspired um, particularly to write about this tree because I grew up about five minutes away from this tree and spent many, many days actually um, visiting that tree um, over my childhood. So look, I think again, there's just so many reasons for keeping this tree that people really value and I'm sure with our clever engineers and so forth, we can think of a better way um, to um, have the path of this road without having to destroy this um, incredibly important tree. And it was fantastic to see it yesterday. I was um, thrilled because 
I don't drive that road very often. It's kind of rare. So I went looking for the tree and I decided to go into the Caltech station to ask the person there if many people come in and comment on the tree. He was very uh, kind of quiet, but smiled and pulled out a petition to give me to sign (laughs) to (laughs) save the tree, which I thought was uh, pretty special. So, um, yeah, so I imagine there are there is a campaign to save the tree. Would that be right? That's right. Yeah, there is a change.org campaign and also I, I believe there's a Facebook group as well that's been set up to try and promote the importance of this tree and, and um, champion its uh, protection as well. And uh, you, when you've invoked the Lorax in your paper, for people who <laughs> don't know who the Lorax is, can you just explain? Well, I guess the Lorax is, I think, probably one of Dr. Zeus's most famous characters and he was... Um, I don't even know how you describe the Lorax, but it's yeah, a small, do, yes. a diminutive little creature with a lovely mustache, and um, he was, um, uh, I guess, championing for saving trees. And again, the story there really is about the fact that once you get rid of things, um, you really can't get them back very easily. And so, his famous line is that he speaks for the trees. And I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, really, that we should be speaking for trees and other and other forms of life as well. Given what's happening around the world with um, you know, the destruction of the environment and um, the mass extinction crisis that we find ourselves in, more and more of us really need to be speaking up for um, plants, animals and other organisms that can't speak for themselves. Um, We should be um, championing for their conservation to make sure that we uh, don't go the same way that that story in the lyrics goes where unfortunately so much of the environment was destroyed. Yes, and you and you, you certainly are speaking up not only for trees, but along with your colleagues, Australia's inadequate protections for endangered species and the need for new laws. Um, we don't have time to go into that, but we will post the paper that you've written about, you and your colleagues have written about that on our website as well. Um, That's terrific. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it was a great paper. Just, um, Thank you very much. Yeah, as and I really enjoyed also reading about the river red gum and you know just paying attention to those things that that we pass every day that we often just take for granted. That's right. I mean, I think again, no one would sort of suggest walking into you know a gallery or something and taking off the Mona Lisa or you know sunflowers or something and just destroying it. Um, but that's essentially what we're doing when we look at these really really old trees that have been there for so long. Um, yeah. And we discard them without much thought. Yeah, and before settlement, as I think you point out in your paper, and it's one of my friends, I, I called one of my friends, uh, uh, she's um, an Aranda woman from Central Australia, and I said, I'm in front of this 300-year-old tree, and she said, before settlement. That was exactly. the first thing she said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so, um, yes. Ewan, thank you so much for coming on this morning. We always appreciate anyone who will get up, you know, and talk to us between 7 and 8.30. So it's been great. It's <laughs> I'm been... always up early with my kids anyway. <laughs> I did problem. remember that. You know, the last time we spoke was about the, the southern brown bandicoot. That's right. We did, yeah. So thank you so thank much. Thank you, Yeah. Thank, thanks very much. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye, bye. I might have to drive out there myself to have a look at this tree. Yeah. I have seen it, and I've driven past there a lot of times. Yeah, it's, I, it's, yeah, it's, but now that you, I'm 
it's great. Get out of the car, go out there and have a look. Yeah. Mm. I had a lovely time yesterday yeah. afternoon. And what was interesting was when I first went, it was kind of misty. You may remember it was misty and cloudy yesterday. And then I thought, oh, I want to get some sound of this traffic. <laughs> so I went back. And by the time I went back, the sun was out. So we'll post that photo of the tree yeah. on our website. I don't drive, so I'm not sure. Oh, you'll have to come I'll take you. It's on, it's on a nice, beautiful bike path. So let's thank mm-hmm. our guests. We had... Fran Baum from the Institute, um, from Flinders University as well, at uh, 745. Um, Vince uh, Scapatura was on at 8 talking to us. Yeah, from Macquarie talking about the uh, US-Australia alliance. And Rebecca Williamson, a fantastic piece on surveillance. And I guess the parents now? The Parents Next Next program program. and the use of public spaces like libraries for surveillance. Definitely go on to the website. The Senate Inquiry is so interesting and particularly the human rights uh, review of that program. Mm -hmm. Just damning. And Rory Godbold at 7.30 who wrote a play about the topic of euthanasia, which has been in hot discussion since 1995 when Dr. Filipnitschke was the first professional to introduce it to Australia. That's right, mm. it was. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to say uh, congratulations to Peter Cullen, founder and national development officer of RecLink. They had their community cup yesterday. Oh, oh. Over 10,000 people turned up, oh, so hopefully they raised enough yeah, needed fantastic. funds. Fantastic. I was there. It was great. Took the oh, kids along. Amazing. Great. <laughs> <Right. laughs> and Women on the Line is Coming the next up show. next. Another, <laughs> just a great show. Thank yeah. you See for you joining us week. on Monday. See you next week. Thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR.